0: Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God.
1: Thank you so much, Susie. Um, Well, we're back in our series in the Gospel of John, and that was a reading from the end of John chapter 2 and most of John chapter 3. And the passage that Susie read so beautifully is a passage that contains some of the most loved and most famous Words in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But it also contains some often misunderstood and somewhat offensive words. You must be born again. That's quite a statement. Uh, my wife, Becca, and my three daughters are today at a family gathering in Portsmouth to celebrate the dedication of my newest little nephew, baby Reuben. And uh, he's just a few months old, and I imagine there'll be lots of cooing over baby Reuben today. Lots of, isn't he so cute? And, you know, look at those little sausage fingers, and he's just so scrummy. And maybe some questions like, uh, tell me a bit about the birth. Um, But I imagine that if today, within all of that talk, if, say, Uncle Paul comes along just a few months after Reuben's been born today, and he looks at him and says, yeah, I, I think he needs to be born again, then that wouldn't go down too well. I mean, I think that would be pretty offensive. And probably lots of people would come up to the defense of baby Reuben and say, oh, he's just such a little cutie. How can you say that? In probably Paul would then miss out on the afternoon cake if he said that kind of thing. It's offensive. Yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, addressing a fully grown and learned man. He says to him, He says to you, he says to me, you must be born again. The phrase is offensive, but it's also much misunderstood. The term born again has been used in several different ways over the years, which are not at all in keeping with the original meaning. So it's become synonymous with a particular brand of Christianity the um, happy, clappy bumper sticker always-look-on-the-bright-side-of-life kind of Christianity, which is not at all what Jesus is talking about. It's also been co-opted for political purposes, where 2020 is the year of a presidential election. Okay? And, and many candidates will claim the title born again because they know that with the title comes votes. But again, that's not how this is meant at all. Some use the phrase to describe a person who's reinvented themselves, like Craig David, as born again, his career in music, and it seems that 20 years on, he's singing exactly what he was singing 20 years ago, and yet somehow, his uh, career has had a second birth, for reasons that I don't quite understand. Um, all these Craig David lyrics come into my mind now, which I'm just trying to filter out. For others, the, the phrase born again is about a defining emotional experience, some sort of description of a climactic uh, emotional event for them. The phrase has just become muddied. So what is being said here? How are we to understand these words in John's gospel? What is it to be born again? Well, once again, as we look closer this morning, we'll see that these words are deeply grounded in the Hebrew scripture. Okay, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And also, we're going to see once again, just as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John so far, that these words are really all about Jesus, about who he is and what he's doing. Okay, so we're going to take a closer look together, and we're going to discover something wonderful again this morning. First of all, let's set the scene. So Jesus is being visited by a man called Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a religious leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing council. And a teacher of Israel, familiar with the scriptures. He's quite a big cheese, okay? He's a big deal around those parts. And it seems he's come to represent the assessment of some of his peers. Because he comes to Jesus and says, We know that these signs must be from God. Okay, that's the tentative assessment of some of the men he's representing. But John's already told us that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to the opinion of man. Because he knows what is in mankind, including this revered man impressive though he is and now nicodemus comes to jesus at night now in john's thought world night should stir up within us suspicion we should hear someone coming at night and think oh something fishy is going on here okay N- not everything's as it seems you see nicodemus comes to jesus at night under the cover of darkness politicking You know, to to spar with him a bit. We know you're from God because no one could do the things you do unless they came from God. You know, he's wanting to spar with him. Like perhaps, you know, Boris Johnson might do with President Trump, saying, you're a great deal maker, Mr. Trump. Make a great Middle East deal. You know, something like that, which we see happening. Nicodemus comes to spar with Jesus. Rabbi, we know you must be from God. The signs point to that. But Jesus cuts right through all that politicking. He says this truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Cuts right through. To the one who's come to Jesus in the dark to talk about God, Jesus speaks directly about true sight. To see, one must be born again. So the first thing we discover about the birth that Jesus speaks about is that it's about sight, seeing clearly. And sight in John's gospel is a metaphor for faith. So the new birth enables one to see and to believe. See what? See the kingdom of God. See the bringer of the kingdom of God. See Jesus. But more on that later. But you see, Nicodemus completely misses the point. He's like, huh? I, I don't get it. And then he imagines Jesus talking, is talking about climbing back into a mother's womb and then coming back out again as a fully grown adult, which is disgusting <laughs> and, and painful. I mean, I don't have first-hand experience of this, but it certainly looked hard giving birth to our eight-pound babies, let alone an 11-stone fully grown man. It's gross. Nicodemus has just got it all wrong. It's ridiculous. He's misunderstood Jesus. Jesus. Now, here's where we need to get into a little bit of New Testament Greek to really understand what's being said. I'm not a scholar, okay, but I've benefited from consulting the books of scholars and some translation material, and it's important to do that now and then, otherwise we can miss what's really being said. Now, the word translated again for born again is the word anathen, okay, which is a word with a double meaning. It can mean anew born anew. But it can also mean from above, born from above. It carries both connotations. But elsewhere in John's gospel, whenever the word anathen is used, it's used in the context of from above. For example, just a few verses later in John 3 verse 31, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who comes from above anathen is above all. Jesus comes from anathen that he might pioneer a new way to be born anathen. He comes from above that we might be born from above. This is nothing to do with repeating birth by human effort, as Nicodemus assumed. To be born again is to be born from above. Possible only because Jesus has come from above to grab hold of our humanity and make it anew in him. The emphasis is that this is all God's doing. His action. And Jesus clarifies this in verses five to eight. He says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus seems to think that this explanation should clear things up for Nicodemus. But still, Nicodemus is like, huh? Now, why does Jesus think this should make things clear? Because Jesus is triggering standard prophetic new creation stuff that is throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And as the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus should know this. He's particularly thinking about the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel. Let me tell you a bit about that. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet to the people of Israel during the time of their captivity in Babylon, okay? So the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem and Judea and taken a whole group of people back with them to the city of Babylon, and that happened in 598 BC, and so Ezekiel is prophesying into that situation, into those circumstances, over 500 years before the birth of Christ, This was a time of great confusion and distress for the people of God. And Ezekiel was from a priestly family. So he would have expected to be ministering, perhaps in Jerusalem, undertaking priestly functions like the ritual cleansing with water. But instead, he was performing his priestly activities. Rather than being in the temple, he was actually in exile and speaking the word of God prophetically to the people. And then Ezekiel In chapter 36, he speaks of Israel's disgrace, of how they've turned from God, of how they've disgraced the name of the Lord, turning away from him. And now the land lies desecrated and spoiled, and the people are scattered. But then he speaks about what God's going to do about it. Beautiful promises for the sake of his name. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 28. God says through the prophet I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. You see, they had been worshiping false gods. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is water and spirit imagery coming through in the context of what God is going to do to cleanse his people, to take their guilt away to put within them a new heart, to put his spirit within them, and it will be God's doing. The the sprinkling of water is like the cleansing rituals that were written in the law of Moses, a promise to give new hearts, and then the nations will know who the Lord is. That's Ezekiel 36. And then after Ezekiel 36 comes Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is amazing. Amazing. Let me tell you a bit about Ezekiel 37. Um, the prophet has a vision of a valley. Okay, maybe you want to close your eyes. I just want you to, or you might want to look at the screen because I've tried to help your imagination here. But now, once you've got that trigger, close your eyes. Now imagine this valley. And the prophet sees the valley and the valley is just full of dry bones. And the dry bones represent the people. And they're, they're Completely dry bones, dead, dead in their sin. And God asks Ezekiel, Can these bones live? And the prophet answers, Oh Lord, you know. You see, with man, it's impossible for these bones to live, but with God, all things are possible. And then Ezekiel is instructed to prophesy life into the bones. And so he starts to speak. God's word over them. And as he speaks, there's the sound of rattling. The bones are coming together. And then the bones start getting clothed with flesh. And then Ezekiel is told to prophesy the breath of life into these bones. So he calls forth the breath, which in Hebrew is ruach, which is another name for the spirit of God, the wind, the breath of God. And the breath comes from the four corners of the earth and infuses these bones with life. Just like in the beginning when God formed Adam from the dust and breathed life into him. So in Ezekiel 37, the spirit of God empowers the word of God which announces God's gift of life. All a gift from him. And then Ezekiel sees before him a mighty living army. God's workmanship, a people of God born anew, born from above, born of the Spirit, the whole house of Israel caught up in the life of the Spirit. This is the vision that Ezekiel saw that you've been trying to picture in your mind just now. And this is the vision that Jesus is activating when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born anathen. In fact, where he says the second time, you, it, it's a plural you. It's like, you know, if you were in the States, you'd say, you all, you all must be born again. You all must be born anathen, whether a scholar or a primary school child, whether a religious expert or a common thief, you all must be born again. And Jesus has come to do it. The Word made flesh full of the Spirit. Jesus says to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Flesh here represents human effort, our fallen human activity. You see, you cannot by your efforts and your work pull yourself up to God. You cannot see the kingdom that way. It doesn't matter how noble your biological ancestry, whether you were born in a Jewish home whether you were born in a Christian home, whether you were born in a secular home, whether you were born without a home. You must be born anathen. You must be born from above, born anew again. You must be, I must be. And this birth is not our doing and it's not in our control. It's not achieved by religious activities or by charitable donations. the most pious person in the world. Think of the person you think, they're just just the most amazing person. They must be born again. It's not achieved by self-improvement or by new resolutions. You know, we don't need Mike Blaber to just become a better version of Mike Blaber. We need Mike Blaber to become a new creation. Something needs to happen. God using the stuff to make something new, like the word that Sam brought earlier. It's not achieved by gathering certain experiences either. Either of what the world has to offer, in sex or in success or in luxury, those experiences won't raise you up to true life. Nor will grand spiritual experiences. It's not like the latest big meeting or the latest form of teaching or the latest kind of meditation. Also, this birth is not achieved by some evangelistic formula. The theologian Colin Cruz cautions us not to tie the experience of being born of the Spirit to a particular evangelistic formula, but to recognize the ways of the Spirit are different with different people, though always connected with faith in Jesus Christ. This is outside of our control. This is outside of our action. This is God's action. We, like the dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, are unable to bring ourselves to life in the Spirit. Sin has dealt a death blow to us, and it blinds us to the things of God. Rather, life must come down from above. We cannot give birth to ourselves. But of course, that makes perfect sense. We know that. No one in this room gave birth to themselves when they first entered this world. It's a quick medical lesson for you. Okay, your mother gave birth to you. Probably with the help of some other people. And worked hard to do so and you contributed nothing to it except a lot of pain, okay? So it is with those born from above. Now, that's important. You see, some of you will be able to identify the day and the hour that you first came to faith in Christ. Others of you, like me, cannot pinpoint a particular moment in time as the conscious beginning of your life of faith. And that doesn't matter. Jesus does not say you must know when you were born again, but that you must be born again. And you're not in control of times and places. You don't give birth to yourself through a prayer or a process. God gives birth to you through his word and spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it came from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. John Stock puts it like this. He says, it does not matter at all if, although you know you have turned to Christ, you do not know the date when you did so. Some do, others do not. What matters is not when, but whether we've put our trust in Jesus. He says, the second birth analogy is helpful in many ways. For example, we were not conscious of our physical birth taking place and would never have known our birthday if our parents had not told us. The reason we know we were born, even though we do not remember it, is that we're enjoying life today that must have begun at birth. So what is the enjoyment of life in the new birth? How do you know you have it? What does it bring? The birth from above brings sight of Jesus. It's in seeing him that you know you have it. So Nicodemus, after hearing all of this new creation language that Jesus spoke to him, was still confused. He said, huh, how can this be? He just doesn't get it. He asked that in verse 9, and Jesus, what he's saying is, if everyone needs to be born again, and it's not about climbing in and going out again, then how, does this, how is this? Jesus responds. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of Man who came from Anathen, from above, he it is who came down to achieve the new birth for us all to share in. Tom Torrance, who's a Scottish-Anglican minister, he explains that the gospel speaks of regeneration, which is new birth, as wholly bound up with Jesus Christ himself. This is so important. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You might be thinking, where did snakes come from? What's What's all that about? Seems a bit offbeat. Well, once again... Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures and here he's triggering another moment in the history of Israel which is being explained by his coming. This is a moment that's documented in numbers chapter 21. You can read the story, but I'm going to tell you about it, okay? So, there we read God's people have been led by Moses in the desert having been freed from slavery in Egypt and they find themselves in the desert. And a few months after passing through the waters of the Exodus and being freed from slavery, they find themselves grumbling against God because the food isn't quite up to the standard they were hoping for. And then some lies are starting to spread through the camp, sowing distrust in the goodness of God, suggesting God just brought us out here that we would die in the desert. And the the thing is, these lies are poisonous and they're deadly. For God is their loving Father. He's the one who made the way. Where there is no, he's a way maker, miracle worker, faithful provider, promise keeper, all that stuff. It is he who freely gives life. There is no life apart from him. So in judgment, to reveal the poison of those lies, deadly snakes enter the camp. And Moses pleads on behalf of the people to God, and God hears their cry and has mercy on them. And he instructs Moses to, to build a bronze serpent on a pole. Okay, You might have seen that from medical organizations because it's become a sign of healing. This bronze serpent wrapped around a pole, and Moses instructed to lift up the bronze serpent so that the people could look to the bronze serpent, and when they look, they will live. All they need to do is look. You see, the sight of the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole revealed to Israel both the poison of their sin and the commitment of loving God to heal them. Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes may have eternal life. Belief, once again, is equated with sight. In the desert, all that the bitten Israelites needed to do was look, just look and live, just look and live, and God will do the healing. No contribution on their part, they only needed to look. Jesus, the one who had come down from above, was to be lifted up so that we who are struck with the deadly poison of sin and unbelief might look and live. All you need to do is look. He has been lifted up for you. Just look and live, and look, and look. For that reason, he took on flesh to be the image of the invisible God. The lifting up of Jesus would be on a Roman cross. Handed over by the Jewish council, he would carry his instrument of death on his back and be nailed to the cross. And there, at his crucifixion, all the deadly poison of sin would be taken upon Jesus. He who came from above and entered into our human flesh took to the cross all the corrupting, dehumanizing, enslaving, poisonous, deadly reality of sin and evil, destroying it there in his flesh. It disfigured him. The prophet Isaiah saw it in Isaiah 52. He was marred beyond that of human likeness. It must have been a terrible sight. N.T. Wright explains that the evil which was and is in the world, deep-rooted within us all, was somehow allowed to take all its full force on Jesus. And when we look at him hanging on the cross, what we are looking at is the result of the evil in which we are all stuck and we are seeing what God has done about it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so has the Son of Man been lifted up. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the cross, this is what he's done. And on the third day, this Jesus who first entered our world through the virgin's womb emerged from a virgin tomb, the firstborn from among the dead, the beginning of the new humanity, full of the spirit, pioneering spirit life. He pioneered the new birth as he walked out of the tomb and declared, peace be with you. He is, as Paul calls him in Romans 5, the second Adam, We are all united to the first Adam and what we inherit is death. But the second Adam has come to pioneer new birth, so that in him we have life and life to the full. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save the world through him. It is through Jesus that you are saved. It is through him that you are born anathen from above. There is no other way. He alone has pioneered the new life. Do you know, the inwardly curved, self-centered life of the flesh is condemned Only in Christ is that condemnation already finished. Outside of Him, there is nothing but condemnation. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So today, look not to yourself. Don't look to your works, to your prayers, to your experiences, to your history, to your feelings, even to your memory. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Look instead away from yourself to the one who comes from above and was lifted up on a cross to give you life, a gift. Even now, even now as this announcement about Christ is being heard, may the Spirit of God blow through this place, bringing life to each heart. Like the breath that empowered the words of Ezekiel as he announced the gift of God, May the spirit animate. It's God's doing, not man. That's what is being said in 1 Peter 1, verse 23 to 25, where Peter says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Jesus came for the world. You are in the world. Jesus came for you, not to condemn but to save. Do you see him? Christ lifted up for you. Do you want him? Christ given to you. Will you trust him? Christ sufficient for you. If there is the flicker of a response of yes, It is the work not of man, but of the Spirit of God, turning your heart to him, imparting life from above. So praise God through whom all blessings flow. Our Father has given us his Son. The Holy Spirit enables us to see the gift and to say, oh yes, Lord Jesus. What is the fruit of this new creation? The fruit of the new birth is to walk in the light, no longer hiding in darkness. His way is far better than ours. So this morning, forsake your sin. It has been crucified and it is yours no longer. So cling not to it. He's delivered you from it. And the fruit of this new creation is love for Jesus. The heart born from above wants him. The heart born from above shares the prayer of John the Baptist just a few verses later in this chapter when he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. More, more of Him. You must be born again. You can be born again. Trust in Jesus, and you are born again. Why don't we stand? Perhaps where you are, you might just want to close your eyes. It might be that there are people in the room for whom this penny is dropping for the first time. Maybe for the first time, you're conscious of the fact you can see him and you want him. And if that's you, I'd love to speak to you and pray with you at the end, just to celebrate in what the Spirit is doing in you. But for all of us, there is a greater sight of him to behold. God's gift to you. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are living and active amongst us and in this world. And I thank you that you take the word about Christ and you apply it to our hearts that we might see and understand the immensity of the gift of God. Father, it is mind-blowing that you so love the world, including a sinner like me, that you gave your own son, that by simply looking, I might live. Thank you, Lord. And we just want to say, we see you, Lord Jesus, and we say, there's no one like you. There's nothing that compares to you. You are beautiful beyond description. You must increase, but I must decrease. I want more and more of you. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. More and more of you. This week, more and more of a sight of the king that would lift our hearts to rejoicing, that would keep us from from hiding in the darkness and rather that we might walk in the light as you are in the light, as children of the light. And so I pray for that in Jesus' name. And I pray for anyone who here is just noticing for the first time the light switch on. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would seal your work, that they would know with great assurance this is God's doing, and they are welcome.